Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try and I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Charlie Russell. Currently starring in Grown Ups at the Vaudeville Theatre, Charlie is arguably best known for her hilarious performances in the hit West End shows The Play That Goes Wrong and the comedy about a bank robbery, alongside her long-standing friends in the Mischief Theatre Company. Charlie has also performed on TV, in film and on radio, And her super skills also include singing, dancing, and quite amazingly, the British Academy of Dramatic Combat's advanced specialisation in sword and cloak. Her stellar success has taken her to Broadway and all around the world to perform, as well as a soon-to-be-released new show on the BBC. Charlie says, I can't say I ever knew all this would happen, but at the same time, I always knew there was something about the group and the work we were creating that was remarkable. I just had this feeling we were on to something special. Welcome to the show, Charlie. Thank you so much. What an amazing introduction. Uh, Seven quickfire questions then. Tea or coffee? Ooh, tea. Stage or screen? Screen? <laughs> Traitor. Can't believe you said that. Oh <laughs> yeah, screen. Tragedy or comedy? The combination of the two, but probably comedy. The West End or Broadway? <gasps> <laughs> oh, um, uh, I mean, Broadway was amazing, but maybe Broadway. Okay, John Cleese or Rick Mail? Rick Mail. Yes. Sandra or Katie? Katie. Really? Yeah. Five star reviews or five angry lobsters? Five angry lobsters! (laughs) I want to ask you about that later. (laughs) Uh, So, Charlie, what was your first ever job? And then what was your first acting job? So, um, I mean, as a teenager, I think my first job was uh, working in a cafe. But my first job out of drama school was working in a shop called Aspinall of London, um, which is sort of an upmarket leather goods shop. So handbags, wallets, um, leather-bound journals, a really gorgeous company. Um, And I worked in the Long Acre store, which is in Covent Garden. And it was brilliant, you know. I was so lucky to have that as a part-time job. Well, I ended up being almost full-time, as you do as an actor. Um, But I had a great manager who would always try and accommodate my auditions so if I had I don't know if I'm you know getting her in trouble but <laughs> but she'd let me sort of take a long lunch and then I wouldn't have a break later but I'd have got the audition in um, and then when I needed to go and do Peter Pan Goes Wrong for example at the Pleasance she let me take time off and then come back um, and that was wow. amazing I was and I made some really nice friends there and they were always really supportive um, and it was always really important to me to have a job that I didn't mind going getting up to do when I wasn't acting 
And because the people were so nice and the products were nice and it was in a nice location, I thought, yeah, I have to get up and I'm not going to act today, but I'm going to be the best salesperson I can be and hang out with these people. And that makes that makes not acting a lot easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's always good to enjoy your work. Mm. And so how did you end up on, on stage then? So um, I started acting uh, amateurly as a kid um, because my mum would do amateur dramatics. And so I was part of the Grange Over Sands Amateur Dramatic Society, uh, which is in Cumbria, if anyone's looking for it. And we used to do pantomimes and sort of summer shows, and I loved it. Um, and then I kind of always wanted to be an actor. I was always doing drama at school, and I had an amazing... I had amazing drama teachers everywhere. But the final school I went to, because I went to quite a few, um, they really encouraged me to apply for, for drama school. Um, and so eventually it took me a while, actually. It took me about three years to get into the drama school I really wanted to go to. Um, I went, and I think so I was 20 when I started at London. Oh, okay. So you, you tried three years in succession? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I tried oh. in my final year of school. Uh, I didn't get in anywhere, so I went and did a foundation year in Cambridge in this small uh, drama sort of it's connected to a college and did a small foundation there where I met Jonathan Sayer who is um one of the well he's the managing director or the of, of Mischief Theatre yeah. and uh and then I didn't get in again so I went back to that old school that I had been so encouraging they gave me a job as a technical assistant in the drama department and then again were really encouraging and supportive when I wanted to go and audition for drama school um and then I finally got into to Lambda. And, and what's that process like for anyone who's unsure, like me? Applying to drama school? Yeah. Yeah, um, it's pretty gruelling, actually. So it's something like, oh, there's some really great statistics out there in the comparison of university to drama school. But there's sort of over 100 of people applying for one place at drama school. Whereas you're only sort of in university, you've got much higher... Um, sort of statistically you're just more likely to get into one of the universities you've applied to Um, because there's so many more courses there's so many more universities but at drama school there are fewer ranges of courses and there are fewer um, sort of accredited drama schools you usually apply then you get an audition you might get a recall you might get a second recall um, and then you get in and you usually have to perform a couple of speeches um, and then the recalls, you'll do things that you haven't been able to prepare for. Um, there's usually a little bit of singing involved. If you want to do musical theatre, it's a completely different journey as well. But when I started at Lambda, I was petrified that one day they were going to walk into the class and go, oh, no, Charlie, you're... that was a mistake. You were meant to get the rejection letter, not the acceptance phone call. We got confused. There's this different person that's meant to be here. Get out. <laughs> I was so certain that was going to happen really? um, for about for about three months, yeah. But I think everybody had it. And then you get there and you just meet the most amazing people, most talented people, and they all love it as much as you do. Well, and they all must really want to be there because it's, it's clear. Generally, yeah. yeah I, I would say so. Um, I think some people enjoy the whole process more than others. And I think some people learn through drama school that it isn't what they wanted to do, which must be a bit difficult. And, but totally fine. Um, but the big thing is the people you meet because those are the people that you end up probably working with, strangely. Well, I have anyway. Yeah, yeah. But, you, but you actually met Jonathan prior to Yeah, Lambda. so I met Jonathan prior to Lambda and it was actually him that got me into mischief. So 
I'd met Jonathan. He'd got into Lambda that year and I hadn't. And so I was working at that old school and I was applying to drama school again. And I was saying to Jonathan, I've got my Lambda audition coming up. I feel a bit rusty. I haven't done any improv or any drama really for, for months. And he said, oh, well, I've, I've just started, I've joined this company that my friend set up, Henry Lewis, um, and loads of people from his foundation here come and, and rehearse this improv group on a Saturday or a Sunday. Why don't you come and join that? They won't mind. And then you can do your audition the next day, stay with me, and, and you'll feel less rusty. What I didn't know was at the time um, they were looking for new members, <laughs> new uh. female members particularly. So I was secretly being auditioned. Uh, for the company at the same time. <laughs> ah, so Jonathan was clearly in on that. I think so. I think he he was sort of, the pressure wasn't there. So if, if they didn't ask me back, I would never know. Yeah. Nice. You know? And that was kind of him. But um, yeah. he was very confident in my abilities, which is very sweet. And presumably those guys were ultimately Mischief Theatre. Yeah. So the people who founded it were, were Henry Lewis, uh, Dave Hearn, Mike Bodie, Harry Kershaw, Josh Elliott, they were all there and probably forgotten, someone really important. Um, and we, they were all there on that first day. We were improvising together. How did that interfere with Lambda? So, yeah, we would do Monday to Friday at Lambda. Um, the shortest day was 10 till 5, the longest day was 9 till 9. And then we would have the weekend off, but mis- people in mischief, um, and not everyone was at Lambda at that point. Some people were Rose Bruford or Rada. Uh, Josh was training to become a doctor. Um, Henry and John were in the year above me. Uh, Nancy was working as an actor as well as other things, making music videos and stuff. And um, we would just come together at the weekend. So I remember lots of people in my year at Lambda saying, you know, oh, do you regret this now? Like, you can't get as drunk as, as us on a Friday night. Um, and I would sort of say, yeah, yeah, God, it's such a weight around my neck. But actually, I was just pretending um, because I loved it. I loved this group of people so much. They were my favourite people. And you've described them as the funniest people you've ever met. Oh, my gosh, I couldn't believe it. And I think if you get the opportunity to spend six hours in a, in a day pissing yourself you should take that <laughs> yeah yeah it's so it was just so fun so why why did it change from the scat pack why do you think <laughs> <laughs> we we were having a, a quite a few so the scat pack the name originated from the fact that scat music is improvised yeah. singing in jazz right to scat um, and we were young, innocent people um, who hadn't understood the other connotations of the word. But when Mike Bodie had to be put in charge of cleaning up our Twitter followers because we had some dubious um, fans, and then we we felt that eventually we thought it might be getting in the way of us going to slightly more established or prestigious venues. We were really trying to to get to the pleasance or, or underbelly with our improv show at the time. And I know we, you know, I'm sure we needed to improve as well, but I just, there was this feeling that people didn't want to put scat pack on their posters. Oh, and then the big one was Dave was ordering himself. Do you remember you, I don't know if you can still do it. Nike ID trainers where you could get something written on them. That's right. And yeah. so he had, he had his left and his right shoe and his right shoe read scat and his left shoe read pack. So if you looked at them, you'd see scat pack. Mm. And Nike was refusing to make them. 
because <laughs> it was offensive language. And at that point, we were like, right, <laughs> should probably change the names. I remember there was a big car journey and we were all thinking about what the name could be. And I, I think I take a lot of credit for this. I don't know if I should. But we were talking about collective nouns because the pack idea of Scat Pack we really liked. So I was like, well, if there was a collective noun that was quite good. Um, and then I was looking up collective nouns and I saw that, that mischief is the collective noun for mice. Um, and I thought, oh, that's funny, isn't it? Mischief, like we're a group of people, but also we're, we're not nasty, but we're a little bit naughty. You know, we're never going to be edgy or offensive, but we are. We push the limit a little bit and we're quite fun to be around. And, and so we were talking about it and it became mischief theatre. Very nice. My favourite collective noun is uh, a wunch of bankers. No way! I've never heard of that before. <laughs> a wunch, yeah, very good. I don't think, I don't think it's real. So um, Mischief Theatre's success is obviously now truly global. When did you first start performing together? And what, what was that like compared to now? So the group began in July 2008. I joined January 2009, so a couple of months later. And I first had my, sh- my first show with the company was that January or the end of January. And so I was 19. Um, and it was amazing. I mean, we would do this improv show called Lights, Camera, Improvise, which we still have now. Um, it's now called Mischief Movie Night, but where we would improvise a film based on the audience's suggestions, a completely made up film. So we'd get a genre, mm. a location and a made up title. And then we would improvise from that information um, a film uh, quickly. <laughs> Ooh, interesting. Um, and I used to, so I was living in Bedford at the time and we used to do this every two weeks. And on the way down to London, I used to try and work out a way that I could be hit by a car just badly enough that I couldn't do the show, <laughs> but without any long-term repercussions. Because um, I was petrified. I was petrified of, uh, of doing it. But then there was this compulsion. I don't know why I kept doing it because I hated it. I was so scared. But I just knew I couldn't bail. I just had to keep going with this company and I was desperate to get better. And it was so fun. We used to perform in venues where there were more of us on stage than there were in the audience. Um, Or we'd be lugging, I remember lugging um, a, a bright yellow hat stand on the tube at like midnight. (laughs) <laughs> and then walking from Hammersmith Station to my flat in Barons Court so that, and we'd just keep it at my house. And then everyone had a bit of the set because we had nowhere to keep anything. Um, and it was kind of, you know, awful and we were exhausted and we definitely didn't get paid. Um, but then there's, in a way, there's never been anything like it since. That level of camaraderie and um, sort of, I don't know, it really brings a group together, some adverse circumstances. <laughs> and how does the improv work then? I mean, do you have a, even just a loose skeleton of a script no, to then God. build from, or is it literally all entirely from scratch? So it depends what you're talking about, actually, because we have a show, an actual show that you can pay to come and see, which is completely improvised, which is this mischief movie night where we take the suggestions from the audience and make it up. There is absolutely no script to work from there. We have no idea what we're doing before we start. It's probably one of the most arrogant things we can do. So <laughs> pay money for a ticket that we have prepared yeah, precisely right. nothing for. Um, <clears throat> and then 
the um and that's really fun but what we do with that is we practice improvising if you practice making things up then you get better at making things up and we work with adam Megiddo from showstopper um and he's also directs P- uh, peter pan goes wrong he's an amazing practitioner improviser director performer um and he's helped us a lot along the way and then we use improv as well when we are creating new work so so far the process has been that the the three guys who've done the writing henry henry and john have a script but we might in the development process say kind of want to see a scene between these two people that kind of covers this kind of subject can we improvise it now the boys might write things down as we go along and then they might write up a scene which we then work on because it's never quite the same it's really funny you can improvise a scene and it's hysterical you write it down, you repeat it, and it's somehow not funny anymore. So you need to, you can't just rely on the improvised work. You then have to look at the work you've written down and really refine it. Because there's, you, there's something you get for free when you're making something up, that the audience is so excited and it's really electric. But if you've got the chance to make it better, <laughs> then you should um, when you're writing. So we do use improv when it comes to, um, when it comes to developing new work as well. Yeah, I think as soon as you write down anything that's made you laugh, it, it the danger is that you you kind of sterilise it. I guess it's so strange, yeah, because you, you take away the the dangerous element that it was made up mm. on the spot. Whereas, yeah. but it can give you the right direction to go in, or it can inspire you. Um, and there's a lot in grown ups actually where it almost comes directly from from things we've improvised. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And and has improvising in itself become less daunting the more you've done it? I mean, do you still wish to be mildly maimed by a car accident? No more, thankfully, no more. When we, we had um, a run at the Arts Theatre with Mischief Movie Night and then a UK tour last year, um, and it was one of the most fun things I've ever done. I had yeah. I had a lot of fun doing it. It was still really scary. There's nothing quite like standing on stage at the beginning of an improv show having no idea what you're about to make but it's so thrilling and if you're good at it um or if at least if you've practiced and you work with people you like there's nothing there's nothing else quite like it really it's amazing yeah funny enough one of our account managers here has just come back from an improv workshop today oh wow just as a, we, we tend to send people on these short workshops just to get people a bit looser and more comfortable in, you know, just presenting and talking and mm. thinking. Improv is really good for confidence, actually, because in a way, if you can get up and and literally with no prep and no, nothing prepared, and you can still create something, then you can do anything. Yeah. And have you always loved improv? I mean, did you, I mean, I was a massive fan of Whose Line Is It Anyway years ago. And that was, you know, mostly improv. Is that something you watched or were a fan of? I hadn't before I joined the company. I'd enjoyed improv in drama classes in school because I sort of gathered that I was maybe a little bit funny and I could make (laughs) people laugh. And then that won me friends. So I was keen to do it at the time. <laughs> um, but no, I hadn't watched that much of it. Um, but I did, once I joined the company, I started to watch a lot more. The, the exciting thing is when I remember seeing a really early showstopper show at the King's Head, I think it was, and I couldn't 
get over it. I couldn't believe that it had been made up. And I thought, well, and, 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 and Henry Lewis is saying that we can do this. Well, I've got to try. I've got to try it. <laughs> so but where does your love of comedy come from then? So more broadly speaking. Well, I grew up. Um, there should be absolutely no shame in comedy because I'm so proud of it. But I know that lots of people can look down their noses on it. But I grew up watching um, uh, carry on films. Absolutely oh, loved them on a Sunday. My mum would sit me down in on that Sunday afternoon with a carry-on film and then you'd get Last of the Summer Wine, which I didn't like as much, Dad's Army, A Lower Low, uh, Faulty Towers, yeah. just uh, Are You Being Served, all of that, you know, I was just, that was my absolute favourite. I loved watching those things. And then Victoria Wood. Mum used to, my mum used to... Um, show me lots of Victoria Wood all the time. And she got me to learn little like vaudeville sketches or songs and stuff. I've seen a quote attributed to you actually saying that there's a slight attitude in theatre that comedy doesn't require good acting. Is that what you were kind of alluding to just now? Yeah, but also because there's there's even snobbery within comedy that... Oh, you know, carry-on films. Well, that's just base comedy. Really? And like, Are you joking? It's so popular. It's so mainstream. It attracts so many people. I think it's really dangerous to be highbrow about comedy because you are just making someone laugh. There's a quite, there's quite a clear sort of success or lack of success. And if people like it, that makes it good. And I don't think people. Surely should people should measure the, um, you know, the effect. The laughter, not the what makes people laugh, like the output, not the input. Yeah, and and, and viewings, viewing figures, for example, on television, um, it's really dangerous to think you're above something unless you are, probably what Monty Python. Like you can't, you can't really. Uh, I, I think it's dangerous to 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 try and be snooty about it. And I, I with the attitude to to the acting thing, I think it is certainly not held by everyone, but. There can be a sort of, oh, that's a comedy actor with a slight derisive tone or or that that comedy actor is then not considered for a serious role. But actually, if you look at the people who are truly brilliant, they're usually really, really good at comedy. So someone like mm. David Tennant is hysterically funny, but a beautiful actor. Olivia Colman, she brings to everything funny she mm. breaks your heart and to everything serious she still manages to make you laugh because she's a real human being um or steve mayhem like you know a really really amazing comedy actor but also really amazing regular actor and it shouldn't really be two separate things it should just should just be good or not good probably but there are people who are really good actors who aren't funny yeah, of course there are. And there's, <laughs> there's great comedy writers, I'd suggest, as well, who aren't particularly funny. I mean, I've personally never been a huge fan of Ben Elton performing, but I think he's written some absolute gold, mm, mm. Um, as has Armando Iannucci. Oh, my gosh, um, I love his stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, look at that. Look at look at the people in his films and and series. They are. You've got, what, Simon Russell Beale is in um, Death of Stalin. Hysterically funny man and petrifying at the same time michael palin's in that film like it's just yeah they're all amazing yeah all the ingredients are there aren't they mm, mm. but it's because, like it's like the um quick fire question with rick mail i mean that guy can just make could make people laugh just by looking at them bosh Woof. <laughs> yeah i love him um i think the other thing is that 
particularly with the kind of work we've done as well, which is slapstick farcical comedy, um, but it's also with play that goes wrong, for example, but it's also under the category of clown. True clown actually comes from um, the schools like Lecoq in France or Gollier, I think it is called. And it's less about the sort of massive shoes and water squirting flowers and a little bit more about um, what people do when they get things wrong. Um, what they do when they are embarrassed or or what their instincts make them do and you and to be truly funny in that in that moment you have to allow yourself to be laughed at and it has to be honest if you are trying to make somebody laugh suddenly it isn't funny anymore so in the play that goes wrong you there's a it's really difficult to get the balance right and we don't always get it you know day to day or even show to show but you need to it needs to be a bit painful physically but also emotionally painful for you that you that it's all gone wrong you know the character of Chris Bean that um, Henry Shields plays is heartbroken that it's that it's all going wrong but that's what's so funny John Cleese mm-hmm. in Faulty Towers he's not clowning around he but he's doing a proper clown you know that kind of we say all goose that really arch high status person being brought low going insane and smashing a car with a birch twig. That stuff, that sort of honesty in your performance, which you need if you were doing a straight play, you also need in comedy, if it's going to be truly funny. How does he feel about the the, the parallels with, with um, John Cleese, incidentally? You'd have to ask him, but uh, okay. I think, I don't think he's particularly upset about it, seeing as John Cleese is a, is a legend. Um, yeah. But I think... He's the only thing I think he worries is he's like I'm not just doing an impression. I did, I did try and do something with it, but yeah, you'd have to ask him. I don't think he'd be upset to be honest. I don't think any of us could be upset being in the same sentence as people like John Cleese or really. Yeah, anyone from Monty, absolutely. Going back to your your point about it being slapstick, farcical, and and in that clown category, do you need to adapt that both for venues? I mean, you've said you've performed to audiences smaller than the cast, but equally taking this to Broadway, were there any noticeable dif- differences in the audience and, and therefore how you, how you, how you perform? Um, well, the small audiences were generally for the improv. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a tough show. It can be really fun. But with the farce and the slapstick, um, we used to perform the play that goes wrong at the Old Red Lion and the Trafalgar Studios in the smaller space. And yeah, there was a slight difference in the size of performance where if you were only a foot away from someone, you don't need to do much with your eyes or your face for them to see the sort of pain and then laugh at you. <laughs> but if you are at a venue verging on, on a thousand, rather than just looking, you kind of need to move your head as well. <laughs> do you see what I mean? They, they need to see a bit more um, at the back. Okay. But I think it's hard. I mean, Broadway was an amazing experience. Um, but at the same time, you know, you just got to gotta do the show you love. If you keep changing, just trying to please people, you'll kind of lose your authenticity and the reason why you started. You use the word pain there. I mean, do you, do, we've, um, my wife and I went to see you guys perform Play Goes Wrong three times. And um, each time, the, the fight you had towards the end, mm-hmm. genuinely, I mean, clearly it was brilliantly acted, but at times did look really painful. 
the thing is, we came up with that fight before we had any money and any one official coming in to check that it was okay. So in the <laughs> early days, yes, Nancy and I used to come home with giant bruises and we've injured ourselves before. But, but really, you should be able to do it without hurting yourself if you're doing it right. The, the, the art of sort of the stage combat is, is, a, is a, to try and make it look as real as possible without actually making the audience worry for you they should wince but they shouldn't get concerned for the actor they should only be concerned for the character um and we it was a very finely tuned choreographed dance and what was interesting was that even though the moves are exactly the same if one of you is out and there's an understudy or if you do it with a different person for a different reason it it suddenly becomes quite scary because it's not the beats aren't exactly what you're used to and so you have to be really present and really aware of everything. You you certainly can't kind of coast, uh, but you can't really coast anyway, to be honest, because it is bloody dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> and it's hugely fun. Do, do you enjoy that scene? Yeah, absolutely love it. It's really fun. It's quite it's quite tough uh, because as Sandra, you've you've been off stage for quite a long time, so you come right. on at the beginning of the play. You're on. And then you get knocked out, then you're off. Then you come back on and you immediately start screaming and running around. So you have to have kept yourself physically and vocally warm throughout that time because otherwise you can sort of sit and then you're cold when you come on stage. But actually you need to match what everyone else has been doing on stage for the last half an hour. Yeah, that makes sense. And then um, the, the, the Goes Wrong shows themselves they've now made their way onto screen which is which is you know great and testament to the success that you've had on stage what what are the main differences in acting and, and producing for screen over theater i mean or is it the same i'm probably it's sort of it's it's strange there are huge differences but so the big difference will be the audience changes in when we've been doing the Goes Wrong show for the BBC, we have had live studio audiences, which is amazing to have a real audience there laughing. Um, but you have to pre-record some bits, which is when you do it during the day before the audience have come in, just because it's a stunt or something, or it, it affects the show and would make it would make that evening take five hours as opposed to two or three. Yeah. So when you're pre-recording, you have no audience and the crew and the, and the director and everyone, they, they can't laugh because it would affect the shot. So you really, you worry that it's, it's going terribly. Um, but you have, to have, you have to sort of have faith in the fact that we were really lucky. The, the BBC and Big Talk organised it so that we had two weeks of rehearsal per episode before we went to film the episode. So in that time where everyone was allowed to laugh, you worked out, oh, okay, I know how it needs to be done. And so there was a real skill then required to just just trust that performance that you have been rehearsing and not sort of freak out because now nobody's laughing. Just do what you have rehearsed. And then the other element to TV is that there's an additional audience member, a very special audience member, which is your camera. Um... And so now suddenly you're reverting, even though technically your viewing figures might reach millions, okay, but you're not performing it live to millions. And in fact, you're as close to those million people as you were back in the Trafalgar Studios, about a foot away from the person in the front row. So now you're sort of almost going backwards and 
it doesn't need to be that big. So my character is very vain and self-conscious and self-aware. And so mm. often checks in with the audience that they enjoy her. <laughs> okay. And so I then re- moved that to the camera. So now it needed to be even smaller. And I hope it's small enough. We'll see when it all comes out. Um, it needs to be su- more subtle because the camera, my face is now, the, takes up most of, of the screen now, you know, in that section or something. Mm. So you have to... It's it's re- it's a really fun dance and a really puzzle a really fun puzzle to put together, um, but when you're in theatre and you've got five hundred people or eight hundred people, it's extremely special because every night is completely different and you have to play to that audience and not the audience you had the night before and not the audience you want and you know not the audience you were hoping for the audience you have and that's that means that it it stays really fresh. And is that is that a um, is that a consistent challenge that you guys face and everyone who who performs faces them that, I, that crowd being different each night? I think so. I can't speak for um, what it might be like to do a very serious, very straight play, um, sure. but I think when you do a long running comedy, you know, every night for the first sort of two months is usually pretty exciting and different. But there can become a, a point where you know the show inside out, you know what works. And so you you do worry about it becoming stale, but it's the audience that helps to keep it fresh because they are always really different. Um, but as actors, it's important to, you don't want to kind of just change it for the sake of it because you want to give the person no. who came on the Tuesday the same show that the person on the Thursday is going to get because, you know, everyone's paid 80 quid for their ticket. You can't, you can't just like mess around or, or, or something, but you, you do want to make sure that it's alive for every audience and that's what a director is really useful for because sometimes they give you sort of a thing to think about that day or in that scene which helps you to have a focus and keep it fresh yeah I guess I've never really considered that how it how it over time becomes and all feels stale because you've obviously performed Mm. so many times but for the audience it's in most instances going to be the first time they've seen it absolutely but stale but also there's something lovely I remember you know being a year into bank robbery and really understanding that show. Or when we went to Broadway, and I'd done it before for two years or something, and I knew I had six months on Broadway, and just thinking, well, I do know this show now, so I actually get to revel in relaxing into it and enjoying it because I'm not worried that it's not good because I sort of, I believe that it is good at this point. And what's the longest running show that, or, or section of time that you've personally performed any of the shows? That, um, that's got to be the play that goes wrong. So because we went from a six-month tour onto the West End and yeah. we did 12 months or just over 12 months on the West End in a row. Wow. So, so it was consecutive. So that, that was a... Oh, and, and before the six months we'd been of tour, we'd been doing Pan, and before that we'd been doing the play that goes wrong. So um, even though Pan came a little bit in the middle, that had only been on for about a month at the Pleasance. Um, so the play that goes wrong, I felt like I'd been doing for a really long time. Yeah, so that must be exhausting. Yeah. Towards the end, at least, so mentally. Yeah, both mentally and physically, definitely, my body. <laughs> and actually, at the end of the six months on Broadway, so where it was a couple of years later... Um, I, I could tell that I, I had aged <laughs> because well, I was okay. like, oh, I am tired. My body would like to stop 
being pulled out of a window now, please. Thank you. <laughs> We've an upcoming guest, Doom McEwen, who you might be familiar with, part of... Oh, God, my mind's gone blank. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, Smack the Pony. Smack oh, the Pony. Oh, my gosh, Smack yeah. The Pony? Yeah, yeah, so yeah, she was one of the founding trios there and she and she was saying the same thing she was she said that six months tends to be her max that the closer she gets to six months the more she feels like physically she's just got nothing left to give and it was only her saying that where I'd really appreciated it from 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 her side from your side so 18 months plus for play goes wrong that must um yeah seems like an eternity it was but but it was part of the journey you see the other thing is it came at the right time because just before that tour, we'd really only been doing it at studio venues. We didn't necessarily get paid. Um, we were had you know part time jobs at the same time. But that tour marked the beginning of I was all my income. Excuse me. It marked the beginning of the point where all my income, and I had enough income to live on, was coming from acting. Mm. And. That was very exciting. And it was also the beginning of the journey of the play that goes wrong, which, you know, you look now and you go, oh, great, we have an award or it went to Broadway. But at the time, I had never been on a UK number one tour. Fantastic. And that was so exciting. And then to go to the West End and we thought maybe for three months. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. We couldn't believe. I couldn't believe what I was you know, being paid, which wasn't actually looking back yeah. on it, you know, comparatively, maybe not that much that maybe not as much as compared to other West End performers, but <laughs> I was being paid to act. And then we got to do the Royal Variety and then we got an award and, and then it kept going and there was a second cast. And so really you don't ever jump from, from nothing. It's very, it's, it's very rare that someone jumps from absolutely nothing to the dizzy heights of of a a very successful acting career it is actually a journey and you don't realize along the way how wonderful it is and then you look back and think oh my gosh it's amazing but we were lucky enough to feel all that amazingness along the way because we just couldn't believe it (laughs) yeah and if you think to yeah exactly that and, and exactly the success that you had from that pan goes wrong being on the BBC, uh, was it last Christmas? No, Pan's Wrong was years ago now. That was um, 2016, 2017, maybe? What, on the BBC? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was yeah. it really? Christ, was it that long yeah, ago? Yeah. So oh we did, God, I remember watching Pan Goes Wrong in the West End the first time at the Apollo, I think that was 2015. I might be a year out because it's Christmas as well, so I get confused about you know, yeah, yes, yeah, um, it. Yeah. 2015. And then, yeah, that makes sense. And then the next year, 2016, it went out on the BBC. Then the 2017, when we came back from Broadway, we did Christmas Carol. That's right. And then there was nothing last year. And then there might be something. Yes, yes. exciting exciting but that was huge that was the biggest thing I mean I couldn't believe it I do just want to quickly before we move on I do want to touch on the posters and your outdoor media ads for the shows Mm. because they will we'll add an image of those to this pod's listing but they are so good who came up with the upside down banner ads well so this is a really interesting story where you learn that just because it is your baby and you made it doesn't mean you know absolutely everything what's best yeah that's a big lesson isn't it? because when we first went to 
uh, no, West End, I think it was. That's when the marketing really ramped up. So we, we work with JHI Marketing, who are a phenomenal marketing company, and they work a lot with Kenny Wax, who is our producer, uh, and Kenny Wax Limited and Mark Bentley. And they came up with this sort of slightly wacky, goes wrong campaign. And we, as young, budding, serious actors, uh, were like, no, no, you know, that's silly. And, oh, no, it won't work. And people won't take us seriously. And it just goes to show how absolutely wrong we were and how brilliantly uh, JHI pitched that. And um, they really nailed it. And ever since then, we, you know, you have to just understand that, you know, people who do marketing really absolutely know what they're talking about. And they're amazing. They've always come up with such phenomenal campaigns. They do work with us in that they might check ideas with us or suggest new ideas and we might sign off on that in a way. Uh, We're now currently working with the Open open Agency on our branding. So we're having a slight rebranding, which I've never done before. And it's been a really fascinating experience. And they're working with JHI, with Kenny Wax, with Mischief Worldwide and Mischief Theatre and Mischief Screen to come up with a sort of branding that um, that ties everything together and so that you can recognise that it's a mischief production, mm-hmm. even if it's something on Broadway or the BBC or in the West End or on tour. And that is a really exciting process. It's not completely finished, but we do have a new logo. Um, and they have been, the Open Agency have worked really closely with us and talked to us a lot about what we think about the company, what we see ourselves as. But the other thing about marketing we've learned is that it's not just how you see yourself. It's accepting how other people see yeah, you. Yeah, it's almost entirely how other And not trying to necessarily, you. yeah, not necessarily trying to fight that. You can direct that or, or sort of nudge it and hope that you might um, change it or, or positively influence it. But you need to be honest about, well, no, but how, how, do, how do most people see us? And is that okay? And actually... Certainly not something to to ignore. Yeah, I've got to. Awesome. So when can we expect to see that new um, identity rolled out entirely? I d- I can't say, but I know that the, the new the new logo is yeah. out. I actually don't know. I just don't. Know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Cool. Um, so let's move on to a play you have actually produced now. So you recently produced oh, really? the piano play. Um, yes, piano which piano. debuted at the Edinburgh Fringe. What's um? Mm-hmm. How was that for you? being the other side of that wall. So funny you ask that question. There's a, there's a drama teacher at Lambda who, after every exercise you did, you'd go, and how was that? <laughs> and think, oh, I don't know what I'm meant to say. Um, I found it extremely challenging. I had not worked as solely a producer before. I have done a little bit of co-producing with Mischief Movie Night, and I've, I've taken on occasional jobs with Mischief, um, and I thought I was really experienced. And then <laughs> I learned that I wasn't. Um, the main thing was Callum Finley, who is um, a really, really dear friend of mine. And we, we met at Lambda and he's an extremely talented actor uh, and writer. He, we were sending each other things that we'd been writing. And he said, what about this? And I said, oh, you know what? That would make, you should totally go to Edinburgh. One man, piano, mm. one hour, easy peasy. <laughs> That'll be, that'll be so easy. Just take that to Edinburgh. And he said, oh, well, you've done it before. Can you help? And so I did. And he was co-producing as well as writing. And then we got a director on board. We got our friend to be in it. Um, but I learned a lot. There is so much to be done. And Edinburgh actually is, you, you get the impression, oh, it's where people start. But it is not easy. 
it is not a beginner's guide to putting on work. In fact, in many ways, it's more challenging than the commercial world um, because you have fewer resources, you have less money, um, and there is a lot of competition and there's a lot of um, there are a lot of things to think about. I loved doing and it. There's a lot of opinion as well. A lot of opinions. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed doing it, and I loved particularly working with Callum and Matt Hassel and Ed. Um, and it went down really well, and I'm so proud of the show. But I also learned that I don't think that is the job for me. Okay. And I think what's interesting is I I never used to do that. I never used to try something that I wasn't sure I could do. I'm quite. I was quite risk averse as a as a child. I sort of focused on the things I was already good at, didn't really push myself out of my comfort zone. And I, doing this producing, I really, really did. And then I learned, oh, it's okay to know that this isn't your strength, maybe, or that you've got a lot to learn, or that it's not something you could do without also being artistically involved. And so I've actually learned a lot more than I thought I would. I've grown in confidence, um, and it makes me want to make more work. I just need a bit more help. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Callum, Callum's really good at it, actually. He's amazing. Oh, yeah. I, well, I mean, everyone has different uh, criteria to measure success, but from what I've seen, it mm. was, it's, it's had huge success and been reviewed brilliantly. So, Yeah, we were so lucky with the reviews. Um, we had, and we had really nice audiences in Edinburgh, really lucky. Um, Underbelly were a great venue to be with. We'd previewed at the other palace, um, and we might even go back there. It's... It's really exciting, and we've been we've been supported along the way, particularly as well because we did a Kickstarter, and actually everybody who got on board, either by donating or just by sharing it, if that's all they could do, but that was so helpful. Um, and it's amazing how supportive people can be if you are genuinely just trying to make something good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's lovely. Yeah, it's reassuring as well, isn't it? Mm. Well, it's great that you've, I mean, even if, as you say, it's maybe made you realise that you would want to do something with more um, people involved or, or perhaps, you know, delay doing any more productions. Mm. But it's important, isn't it, that people do that. So that risk aversion is, is true in all walks of life. And we talk about it quite a lot and always try to encourage people that come through our agency to, to fail, to just fail, because yes. no one's ever going to succeed unless they fail. So just keep failing and do it lots. It's just... Basically, yeah. Do you know what? It's really interesting. Um, Dave in the company, um, he teaches a lot of improv as well. And, and he's been interviewed a lot. And one of the big things he says is that um, the best thing you can really do is become familiar with failure yeah familiar with it treated as an old friend because actually when you take when you take the teeth out of failure it's really fine because you just learn so much and I actually you know I don't think I necessarily failed in inverted commas with piano play but you might argue that me realizing it's not the career of my dreams Oh, is that failure? Well, not no, at not all, at all. Exactly, exactly. It's so useful. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also, I had so much fun, and I learned more from that really difficult thing where I pushed myself out of my comfort zone than I do from doing the thing I can. I've always been able to do, you know. And I, I think improv is really important. The best thing you can do in improv is fail because if you try really, really hard and it works and you make something really funny, mm. then great. If you try really, really hard and it fails, then it'll probably be funny because you failed. <laughs> and so that's also a win. But if you if you just 
don't make a move, that's when it's dead. You just got to make a move. Yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 actually, that needs to be celebrated more. Um, we, we had a great mm. pod with Rory Sutherland recently, and he he talked about. Uh, his dad, they were funny enough, there were parallels with his dad and mine who had both lost a lot of money. Well, first, he made a lot of money and then lost a lot of money in a, you know, in a crazy, why the fuck did you do that type <laughs> of um, thing? And he said, but wow. fallen, you know, we need to celebrate failed entrepreneurs as much as we celebrate a fallen soldier. I mean, these guys are, mm. are trying and doing and yeah, it might not have been successful, but it could have been something completely out of their control. Like, so um I think that whole process is what's so important, but mostly because it's what holds people back in their life throughout your entire life. It's that aversion to risk and fear of what might happen that, you know, never does really that stops people actually living. And that's, that's the the biggest um, issue with it. I know. I'm sure you guys talk about it all the time and I, and I don't know the statistic, but wasn't it like Steve Jobs had loads of failed companies or ideas or something before yeah oh yeah he had his big success and and even in grown-ups you know I remember the rehearsal room we had this big we had a bit of a tricky situation we couldn't work out how to fix it and so I was like okay guys I I I don't think this is the answer but but here is my thoughts here are my thoughts about how we could fix it and we're going to try it and then we'll see what happens so we did and it wasn't the right answer but then that gave I think it was Henry Shields he went oh it's not that, but it's it's something one step on from that. Yeah. But I wouldn't I wouldn't have known that the that the answer was what it was if I hadn't if you hadn't tr- basically failed because now I know what it is because it's sort of a bit like that, but it's not quite like that. I mean, it's hard to describe without specific. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes complete sense. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes complete sense though because it's not necessarily coming up with the right answer, but it's just a momentum and just keep moving and keep moving because. Keep moving and learning. Okay, it's definitely not this. Well, it's definitely not this. Yeah. Um, and then you, and then you're more likely to find it. I found that with piano play a lot. We we failed a lot, um, and that's what helped it to become as good as it is. But the thing is, it's still growing. Yeah. Um, and that's really exciting. And then Callum and I want to work again together. So we do want to make something else. He's written an amazing play, and I've got someone involved who I think would be really really good artistically, and we're all going to meet soon. And and that's really exciting. And I didn't feel confident enough to try with that play because it's bigger mm. before. But after piano play, I've gone, well, do you know what? Maybe I can now because I took a step forward so I can just take another step rather than a leap. Just keep taking some steps. Keep going. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I um, I think you're right about um, Steve Jobs. There's, I mean, there's numerous examples, but one, funny enough, someone told me about recently. Um, it's not it's not even the best example by a stretch, but the um, the guys who made Angry Birds app, that little game, mm. that was their 26th app, and 25 right. bombed, and they lost hundreds of thousands of pounds in the in that process. And now they have a franchise that is popular and has moved. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Right? Yeah, it's ridiculous. Oh, it's amazing. I've got some listener questions I'd like to put to you. But before I do, I just want to quickly Ooh. plug um, and congratulate you for, for running the Royal Parks Half Marathon at the weekend for, for <laughs> Women's Trust. What a fantastic yeah, cause. Yeah. So, um, and you've smashed your, um, uh, your fundraising target. I think you were on 150% last time I checked. So yeah, awesome. I was really lucky. So the original target was five hundred pounds. I thought I can do five fifty, <laughs> and I think we're on over eight hundred now. And it was for Women's Trust, which is an amazing charity that um, provides free therapy for survivors of domestic abuse in London. Um, so something like 
£10 helps them to maintain a room. £50 pays for a woman's session. Wow. I mean, it, <clears throat> the, the money is so well uh, organised and spent. And it was so fun. Royal Park's half marathon is a really great thing yeah. to do. I, I advise everyone to give it a go. Again, something I thought I'd probably fail at because I couldn't train quite as much as I wanted to. I'm not a particularly fast runner. <laughs> but I managed it and I did I don't really care about the time. No. I just did it. I was so happy at the end of it. Um I would really encourage people to do something else like that in their lives that isn't to do with their career. It's just another little thing for them. Yeah. I, I got a lot from it. And it was a really well run event as well. Ethical, sustainable. It's a nice scenic route as well. Well certainly for gorgeous route. Well, well, we'll um, we'll put a link on this episode's listing to uh, the Women's Trust as well because they do very mm. important things. So, asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But that's not stopped us asking. So, we've got two questions as usual to put to you, Charlie. The first one is from Paul. And Paul says, J.J. Uh, Abrams is a producer of The Play That Goes Wrong in the U.S. I saw some of the guys appeared on the Jimmy Fallon show with him, but have you met him and what's it like working with one of Hollywood's best known directors? I have had the absolute honour and pleasure of meeting JJ. He is probably the nicest person in the business. He is kind and generous and warm and completely self-effacing and humble but not in an annoying way, in, in a, just a very genuine way. I can't really describe how wonderful that guy is. Mm. <laughs> he, um, it was, he, he was so supportive of the show. He, he'd come to see the play that goes wrong because he was in London filming something. And he was walking around Hyde Park and he thought, I want to go and see a show. So he Googled play London. And of course, play London gets you the play that goes mm. wrong. So he thought, that looks fun. I'll go and see it. Came and saw us afterwards. I didn't recognize him. And I thought, what a lovely American man <laughs> that came to say hi to me after the show. That was nice. Um, and then he, he said to our producers, look, I want to help you take this on and take this further and take this to America. He was really supportive. He was in when we were in uh, the Lyceum in, on Broadway. He came and helped us in our rehearsals. He was there at the technical rehearsal. There was a scene that needed a little bit of tweaking with myself and Dave Hearn. And he sort of said, um, would anybody mind? I've kind of got an idea, if that's okay. <laughs> and everyone went, yeah, that's okay, JJ. <laughs> what would you like to, to suggest? And of course it was brilliant. Mm -hmm. But there was this moment where he was talking to us and I thought, okay, I've got to listen to what the, listen to what the director's sort of saying. And then my eyes just sort of glazed over as my brain just went, you're getting direction from JJ yeah. Abrams. <laughs> and then I had to, I had to quickly <laughs> shove that back out of my yeah. mind so that I continued to listen to him. And ever since then, he's been so supportive. Um, we went and saw him in LA and he came and said, hi, he showed us around Bad Robot. Um, we saw him when he was over again recently for the latest Star Wars film. Um, he yeah he's an amazing person and if you ever got the chance to work with him I'd say yes he the eth the f sort of the is it ethics they have about in Bad Robot about making just keep making keep trying mm. they give a lot of support to people without any pressure to produce something they say just keep going just keep going don't worry about a deadline just we just want to give you the tools to make some stuff and that's why they create some of the best work in Hollywood. 
And also he's extremely generous with his wife and him. Um, his wife is an amazing woman as well. And they raise a lot of money for great causes. Awesome. Well, he sounds like an absolute gem. No, he's, a, he's an amazing man. Mm. I love him. <laughs> <laughs> I love him. You heard it here first. That's great. That's great. And, and, and do you anticipate him being involved further as you might take other things to the US or is that... I think he is... I might, if I get this wrong... Um, I think he's also pro- part of the producing team for Magic Goes Wrong. Oh, cool. Um, but I don't know about the, you know, beyond. But I, I think if we were to come to New York, he would at least come and say hi. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But hopefully he'd be involved. We would like that because he's a gem to work with. Yeah, fantastic. That's amazing. That's that's just... Nice to hear, isn't it, that, that someone that good and that successful actually is a good person. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it, it, it just restores your balance, doesn't really it? It's really nice. Yeah. And me and Dave always say, like, just I, I always say, you know, it's just proof that if you're actually good at something, you really don't need to be a dick about it. Yeah, <laughs> I think yeah. I mean, that come, that's actually come up quite a lot on um, on this pod. I think sadly that it's just a law of averages at play, isn't it? It's yeah, it's a total myth that you need to be an arsehole. In fact, if you if you're truly good at your job, you should be a relaxed, kind person because you've got nothing to worry about. Yeah, yeah. Well said. Nothing to prove. Question two from Sandra is, do you have a favourite play that you've appeared in and also a favourite play that you have seen, as they may be different? Mm, so if we do mischief plays to appear in, I love them all for different reasons, but for a long time, comedy about a bank robbery was an incredible show to be a part of and to play Caprice in that show um, is is a a dream. It's such a fun show to do, and um, I, I had an absolute blast. It was also one of the first. Not that female character is is one of the stronger, and in fact, both of the female characters in that play are slightly stronger, a little bit more developed, mm. and I really enjoyed playing that. Um, I've seen you say that before, actually. In our in our research, we saw that I, I anticipated that being your answer. And I don't know why, but I was surprised. That's, sorry, that's not a slight on on the play because it's brilliant. But I just think the play goes wrong. It's just so flawless. Yeah, it is an amazing show. It's <laughs> well, I think. Um, well, I think it, for me is that I I absolutely love the play that goes wrong. And as a piece, you're absolutely right. It kind of just sits perfectly as this is a good comedy. This is a comedy. And it, and it succeeds at what it's trying to do. And I love to be in it. But I think I always love shows that how funny, but with a little bit of heart, a bit more sort of emotional stuff. So, you know, I love like the British office, American yeah. office of the office. Um, I love things that make you laugh and then make you cry at the end. And so Bank Robbery just was the first show. No, no, Bank Robbery had a bit more heart, um, a little bit more of a storyline. Peter Pan also has that heart, which I love to do as well. And then Grown Ups for me, is is a good balance um, because there is a serious storyline, which I'm really lucky to be part of, but it's also really funny. So I really enjoy doing Grown Ups now. And then favourite play to have seen? Oh, my God. I'm Of course, I'm going to completely forget, you know, the big play that I've seen that I love. Um, but along that vein, I love uh, James Graham plays and I loved... His, not his, his most popular, but um, Labour of Love. Because it, um, it had Martin Freeman, Tamsin Gregg, 
um, his script, James's script, it was hysterically funny and had this beautiful, romantic, heartbreaking storyline in it. Um, and I really enjoyed watching that. Um, but also, it, I'm a little biased because she's my friend, but Rebecca Frecknell's Summer and Smoke at, at the Almeida and then subsequently on the West End is a flawless produ- production. Absolutely stunning. Um, beautifully acted, beautifully directed, beautifully designed. It's just an amazing show. Awesome. And is that one still still running or is that... Um... No, it's not. No, it's closed. So I should probably say something that's still running. <laughs> um, but no, that one's closed. Uh, oh, I loved in, on Broadway is Come From Away. I've not seen it in the West End, but I loved that musical. I thought it was brilliant. It must be quite, it must be even more relaxing to, to be in the audience when you go and watch these. Yes. I find it difficult to be in the audience of an improv show uh, or even or even one of our own shows, because if I watch the play that goes wrong, my body twitches at the same time that I would have been twitching, you know, in the show, because it's like this muscle memory. I hear my cue and my my sort of muscles go, like spasm. And so it can be quite a tense experience, even though the actors are amazing and and, and I love watching them and the show is great, but I my own sort of muscle memory makes me nervous again and gives me this shot of adrenaline so it can be quite tiring seeing one of our one of our own shows yeah you must kind of live through it as if you're as if you want to say was that was I meant to ask you earlier actually was that really challenging to cast people to play the roles that you had come to play so closely and, and tightly I think at first it was because we weren't entirely sure where the character sort of ended and the actor began. Yeah, of course. Was, you know, does Max need to be like that because that's what Max is like? Or is that just what Dave brought to it? And can we allow another actor to bring something different? Where, you know, which bits can we let go? And which bits do you want to keep? And that kind of thing. Um, but over time, we've learnt, you know, really the essence of each character. And, and it's so much easier to cast. We're really lucky that there are brilliant actors out there who'd like to be in our shows. The second cast of the play that goes wrong was filled with a lot of other mischief theatre members <laughs> because <laughs> they are the people that knew the kind of work we were doing. So Bryony Corrigan, who's in Grown Ups, uh, was the second person to play Sandra on the West End, and she, I watched her performance and went, "Oh, that's how it should be done." You know, she was that good, and we were really lucky to have people like her and James Marlowe. Um, and Niall Ransom in our, and Laura Kerman and people like that in our shows um, after us. Yeah, and I suppose everybody individually brings something extra to each role anyway, and it would be silly to think there's a, a hard line or divide between the character and the actor. you just got to work out what it is. You know, you want, you want every actor to feel free to bring something to it, but at the same time, like we were saying about, you know, people on Tuesday seeing the same show as the people on Saturday night, the people three years mm. ago should... And the people now should be technically seeing the same shows. You just, I imagine it's similar in other industries, actually, when you kind of, when a new team takes on a product, they want to bring something new to it, but you must maintain the essence of what makes that product that product. Yeah, of course. Of course. Though I refuse to believe anyone can look and smirk at an audience like Dave does. (laughs) He is, he is so popular. (laughs) It's, it's, It's very annoying. It's, he's a very annoying man to live with, but because um, uh, he, his head can't get through the front door. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he is he is extremely popular and very good. <laughs> yeah, he is. He is. No, he's absolutely fantastic. 
Um, so the final part then of the interview, Charlie, is our four pertinent poses that we put to everybody. What advice would you give to your younger self? Well, interestingly, we've talked about it. I would tell myself to fail more. Go out there and crash and burn a lot more. Because do you know what? As long as it isn't heart surgery that you're crashing and burning at, it's fine. <laughs> you just, just go out there and fail a little bit more. And not just in your work, but maybe in other parts of your life too. You know, Tell that person how much you love them. Well, you still can. If you could banish one thing from your industry, what would it be and why? There's a few. Go on. <laughs> but I think it's something that's been coming up a lot lately, and um, I think it's really important, is the attitude that some people have about understudies in a show. I okay. hate that understudies can be separated from the ensemble sometimes in some people's productions they can be slightly dismissed and disregarded seen as and and I think that's a huge mistake because your understudy is really your life belt your understudy is a person who makes sure you don't get to cancel a show so you better honor and respect that person and the work they're putting in and give them the tools to do their job properly stop giving them no time to rehearse or no run-throughs with the actors they would be on stage with. Because we at Mischief Theatre really feel it's a team effort. And um, it actually wasn't started by the original company, but one of the companies came in and nicknamed them the Thunder Studies because they are so amazing and they come on, they learn more than one role. They sometimes get no time before they are told they're on stage. And they nail it and they stop that show being cancelled. They mean that that audience gets the same show that someone else did the night before. And I think people need to see it as a team rather than a hierarchical situation. Um, are there any books you would recommend to our listeners? Oh, my gosh. I love reading <laughs> so much. So, um, <laughs> God of Small Things by Aaron Datteroy um, is amazing. Um, if Nobody Speaks of Mar- Remarkable Things, I think it's John McGregor. Um, I'm currently reading Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, which is not what I expected at all. It's blowing my mind. One of my favourite books ever is Jane Eyre. Um, I also really enjoy uh, The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, which is an Anne Bronte book that people should have a go at. But my ultimate favourite books of all time are actually the, um, the Northern Lights trilogy and The Book of Dust. I think Philip Pullman is a phenomenal writer. Um, and mm. it's a brilliant escapism, but at the same time, not in a not in a cheap way. You still have to interrogate yourself when you read those books. But he tells such exciting, magical, beautiful stories. Awesome. Well, they're they're all entirely new to the show, so we'll we'll, we'll certainly be linking to all of those. Oh, love um, books. <laughs> <laughs> when I do you really, get time I'm to read? A nerd. I read every night before I go to bed. Um, every night. I and I have a list of modern classics that I'm trying to get through. So um, cool. Anna Karenina, I think, is next. <laughs> and so, so why is why is Frankenstein so good? Is it, and, and did you just say it was it wasn't what you anticipated? No, so I've never seen a Frankenstein film, or but obviously I've seen references, and it's this sort of horror, right? You think it's this horror, yeah? But it's absolutely not. It's it's this. It's quite a um, shockingly accurate 
interrogation of sort of the human soul. <laughs> I can't really, okay. I'm not a particularly intelligent like person. <laughs> I'm not very good at kind of criticizing books. I just like them or I don't, but it's so philosophical and heartbreaking and it makes you think about, it's making me think a lot, and I don't know whether this is apt or not, about how can you truly br- blame a person for maybe committing a crime if they've not had the same love and opportunities as someone else. It's that whole Albert Einstein thing, you know, if you judge a fish by how well they can climb a tree, then they're always going to be stupid. Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't take into account people's experiences, people's upbringings, um, then you can't really compare them to just any other person. And you, you, we need to basically give each other a lot more love and give each other second chances and, Give each, and believe in other people because when you believe in someone else you give them that the tools to make better choices it's it's, it's an amazing book i'm really astounded <laughs> sorry i could go on for hours i could do it i could do podcasts about books mate i fucking love yeah. it <laughs> we always dedicate every show to someone every episode to someone charlie and we bestow or hospital pass that honor depending on your view to our guest who has to give their reason why so would you do the honors Yes, so I would therefore, it's hard, it's sort of two different groups of people, but I would dedicate this podcast to um, those drama teachers that I had. So um, I, if I can get all their names in, I probably can't. Miss Mr. Sagan, um, uh, Helen Reese Bidder, Jason Riddington-Smith, um, all these amazing teachers that I had growing up, particularly those ones I had in sixth form that turned around and said to me, I th- we think you can do it. If you really want to do this, we think you can do it. We can't promise you that it's going to work out. We can't promise you that you'll get into drama school and we can't promise you that even if you do, you'll be an actor five years later. But we believe you can do it, so how can we help you? Mm. And without that, you know, I, I really, I wouldn't be here. Everyone needs that type of support. So, so perfect. So this episode is dedicated to them and, and anyone else who has been involved in that journey. Yeah, all those amazing teachers out there that do that for kids every single day and especially the, uh, the, the drama department at Bedford Modern School, which I was really fortunate to go to um, for those last two years. It's a private school, so it actually had resources as well. Um, but those people were specifically just so encouraging and wonderful. So as a a final call to action, everyone listening can head over to the website or the episode listing. We've shared or will share everything discussed, links to all of the book recommendations, links to Mischief Theatre and everything that's currently running, including Grown Ups. How else can they get more Charlie Russell? Oh, darling. Um, (laughs) So who wants that, really? Um, So on Twitter... I am at CF underscore Russell um, and I am a bit addicted to Twitter. So I enjoy cat memes particularly, <laughs> if you want those. Uh, and yeah, Mischief Theatre, Grown Ups at the Vaudeville, um, The Goes Wrong Show on BBC One. You can also, uh, my agent is Chloe Brayfield at Amanda Howard Associates. And um yeah, I usually put things on Twitter if it's something you can come and see or watch or read. Um, oh, I also did a podcast um, 
don't know if you can do cross podcast promotion, but um, yeah, I'm sure we can. Podcast called the Grief Cast, uh, run by Carrie Lloyd, and I had an episode in the Grief Cast, which is a completely different style and tell a, a story in that that um, a personal story, but it might be useful to people. So you could you could read, listen to that, or listen to other episodes as well. There are there are a hundred episodes now to go through, and they're amazing. Perfect. We'll 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 certainly link to that, and I I think that's on your um twitter as well i think you've shared that it is yeah yeah perfect well um charlie thank you so much for joining us it's been a real pleasure and a privilege to talk thank you for having me thank you so much um and finally thank you to everyone listening if you've enjoyed this episode please tell someone else about it and keep the guest requests and questions coming in to get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. See CTA Pod on Instagram or just by emailing hello at calltoaction.co. I can't get no call to action. Try and I try and I try and I try.